Welcome to the BioCurious Podcast with your host, Kayla Osterhoff. As a health scientist, biohacker, and generally curious person, I'm always looking for new ways to optimize and integrate mind, body, and spiritual health. I created this podcast to explore the magic and science of human biology and expand your consciousness through learning. If you enjoy the episode that you're about to hear, please leave a review and share it with someone who can benefit from the information. Now let's get curious. Hello, my bio-curious friends. Welcome to another beautiful Wednesday and another beautiful, or at least I think so, episode of the Bio-Curious Podcast. Today's episode will be a little bit different than our normal format as it will be a double header with the You Are Limitless podcast hosted by Ani Manyan, who is well known as the ultimate mirror. And you'll understand that title a little bit more as you listen to this episode. But if you aren't familiar with the You Are Limitless podcast, definitely check it out and you'll hear also this episode there, but he has some amazing episodes and guests on his podcast as well. During this conversation, Ani and I dive deep into the inner workings of the mind and we explore the aspects of the mind that limit us from reaching our full potential. We also talk about some of the ways that we both have personally overcome these limitations, and we discuss some practical tools that anyone can use to become limitless. Now, without further ado, let's dive into this episode. Ani, welcome to the BioCurious podcast, and also, I guess... I am coming on to your podcast, The Limitless Podcast. Hello there. It's such a pleasure to have you here and simultaneously be on your show. <laughs> yeah. So I am so excited for this conversation because you and I met about a week ago in Austin through a mutual friend, Sean Wells, who my listeners are familiar with. He's been on the podcast twice. And actually, we are going to release an episode in a couple of weeks with him. Is so that be, we both have on their personally overcome these limits. Beautiful. I think I need to get him on mine because he's just and we discuss some a, practical tools to that anyone can use oh to become Absolutely. limitless. Sean is amazing. Now, without he's further ado, let's dive into this. I am episode. so grateful that he introduced me to you because as soon as we met, it was kind of like kindred spirits, and we just started going down the rabbit hole of the mind and the brain and things that we're both so passionate about and. Then we were like, we have to record a podcast together because we both have podcasts and we have so much in common. So we're going to kind of just like have a rap session here. And I'm super excited to dive into it. Yeah, this is the neuroscience version of the band Fish. Yes. We're going to be just, uh, <laughs> just jamming. So Kayla, you are a wizard and specialist and just avid researcher of all things brain and... I'm all things mind. And one of the things I think we're going to be doing here is exploring the intersection mm. 
of the brain and the mind. And this is something that a lot of people use interchangeably these words and they think sometimes it's one and the same. How would you contrast for our listeners here? How is the brain different from the mind and why should people even care? Oh my gosh, this is one of my favorite topics to explain because as you mentioned, I dive deep into the research of the brain, but also the subconscious mind. And so I love highlighting this distinction because a lot of people do use these terms interchangeably and they're not interchangeable. However, like you mentioned, there is definitely an overlap. There is an intersection, but these are two separate entities. So The way I like to explain it to maybe somebody who doesn't know neuroscience and they don't know physiology very well, but in a way that everyone can understand is if you think of your brain, it is the physical construct, right? It's located in your skull and you can think of that as the hardware of your operating system. So your human self has an operating system and there are two major components. There are actually three, and I'll mention that in a minute, but two major components that everyone is familiar with, but they talk about them as one and the same. So one is the hardware, that is the brain, the physical aspect. And then the second is the mind, which you can think of as the software or you can call it consciousness, right? But there is another component of consciousness as well. And this is the third component that I like to bring in, but it's a little esoteric. So people sometimes are not super comfortable with it, but there's a third one that is the spirit, which is kind of the collective consciousness. And so if you think about all of these and their interaction in terms of epigenetics, it makes a lot of sense because the external world And that can include the, this is your external environment that includes that spirit aspect, that collective consciousness, everything that is kind of coming into us, the information. And then there is our internal environment, our subconscious mind. And these two interact with the physical and manifest in the physical, creating new neural pathways and and kind of... um, altering the way that you that you think, the way that your mind works through that physical aspect of the neurons and the neural pathways. To me, as a scientist, all of this makes perfect sense if you think of it through the lens of epigenetics. Yeah. And, you know, it's important also to say, like, most people, every single human being really, experiences yeah. their physical structure, the physical hardware through this operating system, through the mind. Yes. The mind is really the only thing we're ever experiencing. So when we think about our finger on our left hand, our index finger, that experience happens at a mental level. Even this conversation, when I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you, you are actually not outside me. You're actually an experience within my consciousness, within my mind. Mm. You exist in a way in my mind. And there's a great quote, I think this is Neville Goddard, but he says, Mm. your world or everything is you pushed out. That is, our entire conception of reality is actually happening inside our mind. And it appears like it's happening outside of us. Yes. Right? And in reality, I can't see you directly. The brain isn't really connected to you in any direct way. 
Um, so I'd love for you to talk about that, like the optic nerve and how all the impulses work, because, you know, this seems like a very minor detail, but this is actually, it's got massive, massive implications in terms of how we orient with reality and with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And so as you were saying, our eyes, the optic nerve collects information from the outside, but it isn't that straightforward. Just as you mentioned, the outside and what we actually see is determined by our mind and our brain. So the brain being, again, that physical construct, the neural pathways, the way that you typically think, it's like thought patterns, basically. And it's the way that each hemisphere of the brain communicates with each other. And the other aspect is that your mind, your belief systems and your emotions, your mood, all of that does also determine what you see. So for instance, some people can, I'm like looking outside my backyard right now and there's a bunch of green trees and it looks really beautiful. And to me, I see like a serene garden, beautiful. It makes me happy. Somebody else who maybe doesn't like the outdoors and they don't enjoy being with plants, they would look out there and say, oh, that's horrible. I, it's an ugly scene. It looks overgrown and they see something completely different. We are both seeing the same thing However, the way that we process this information and the way that we view it, so we will physically see something different depending on the way that we think, right? This is expressed, I forget who the artist is, but there is a, it back, I think it was in like the 40s or 50s when physics was first kind of starting to take the scene and then quantum physics started to come in. And we can talk about the difference between that because this is relevant. But basically the field of quantum physics says that consciousness is the difference, right? So regular physics is all about the atoms in motion, right? And quantum physics is also about atoms in motion, but the impact that consciousness, that observation has on atoms in motion. So a good example of this is exactly what I was mentioning about the sight, right? And how your brain interprets that and then what you actually see each individual. So there's a, a painting, this, I think it's called My Wife and My Mother-in-Law. So it's a fun one, look it up. And basically, if you look at it, there are two images in one. However, when you first look at it, you will see one. You'll see one or the other. You'll see the beautiful wife or you'll see the old grand or old mother-in-law, right? But if you keep looking, you can change the way that you think. You can change your perception, your mind, and then you can see the other image. And then you can go back and forth between the two. But as if you only think it's one image and you don't know there's a second option there, that consciousness aspect, then you will only see one image. And two different people will see two different images based on their perception. So that's the best way I can explain it. That's beautiful. And, you know, Young's double slit experiment, I think it was back in the 40s. Yeah. It underpinned this idea, right? That it's called the observer effect, which is yes. they basically shot photons through these slits. And they, what they realized was that sometimes it would appear as a particle and sometimes it would appear as a wave because they were trying to understand what is the you know, smallest building block 
of everything in the universe. And what they realized was that they got what they looked for. <laughs> exactly. If they wanted to find the particle, the scientists who were convinced that it was going to be a particle, they found the particle. And the ones who were looking for a wave, they found the wave. And so why is this important? This is important because we don't see the world as the world is. We see the world as we are. That is our perception really shapes what we see. And there's no real objective reality. So even though you and I are in this conversation right now, all our attention is on the shared space that we're creating this conversation, we're having these ideas, we're discussing. We can experience the exact same events, the exact same stimuli, the even the exact same emotions, but we will walk away with quite different um, imprints of this experience. And what's that difference? The difference is I'm experiencing this conversation through my eyes and my beliefs and my perceptions and my personal subconscious imprints. And you're doing the same with yours. And everything that we're perceiving is being colored by the collective history of our presence on the planet since we were born because I had a different set of experiences than you did. And therefore, we are essentially living in separate realities, even though it feels like we all share the same reality. And it's really absurd when you really understand this, how people argue about race, religion, politics, right? Most of the world is trying to convince the, the other, quote unquote, the other mm -hmm. of their views. Yeah. Right. As if it's objective truth. But the truth is pretty much there is nothing objective in the universe. It is all completely subjective. Absolutely. And this is such a vital point to get across that I want to reiterate to all the listeners in this time that we are experiencing right now with coronavirus happening and the BLM movement and all kinds of unrest and people not sure where they're going to get their next paycheck, their next meal, if their family is going to be okay, if they're going to get sick, all of this unrest. And the focus largely has been on trying to convince, like you said, the other of what we believe. And what we believe is colored by our experience. So if we are staying in kind of a state of anxiety and stress and depression during this time, then all of the world is going to be colored through that lens. And the cool part about it is, and this is something that we talked about um, the other night, but is that when we go through a traumatic experience like this, and more specifically, when we go through an experience that pushes us out of our normal routines and constructs and ways of thinking, we have a couple of opportunities that can work for us or work against us. So one is that the brain becomes more plastic. Neuroplasticity increases when we are pushed out of our normal routines and we're forced to think differently, we're forced to think outside the box. So that means we have an opportunity to create more easily new neural pathways, which in a regular situation where everything is comfortable and you're in your normal patterns, that takes a lot, a lot, a lot of repetition, right? So it takes time and it takes dedication and motivation. However, 
when your brain's neuroplasticity, it's the moldability of your brain, is increased by something traumatic happening that is changing your views, the way you behave, you have an opportunity to streamline that process and create new neural pathways a lot more easy and kind of get out of those old ruts, old ways of thinking. And on the flip side of that, with the subconscious mind, is our subconscious mind is more programmable when we go through something shocking, whether it be good shocking, bad shocking, whatever it is, but we have a dramatic change in our state, in our emotions and in our ways of thinking. And that creates an opportunity to reprogram our subconscious mind a lot more easily than we would be able to in normal times. So what I was saying about it could work for you or against you is you can use these two benefits to benefit you. (laughs) I see them as benefits. Um, If you choose to see the positive in things as you're able to, if you choose to focus on yourself, self-care, mindfulness, you focus on your health, you focus on your family, you focus on the good aspects of what's happening, and you will hardwire that kind of positive feeling and positive moods and a way to get there into your brain and you'll reprogram your subconscious mind with these things. And on the flip side of that, if you spend this time in stress, anxiety, fear, anger, depression, whatever it may be, which sometimes is not completely out of your or within your control, you run the risk of really hardwiring that in and making it a lot more difficult to change that way of thinking later on. And this is probably the only discussion where you'll hear that plastic is good. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? So let's 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 really dive into that for a second, right? And let's really so when Kayla says neuroplasticity and the ability to mold your brain, let's talk a little bit about why this is important. Most people live in essentially a routine state with some minor deviations. And for some people, you know, well, let's be really honest here. For most people, this is a state of chronic stress. Yes. And we know that, you know, 60 to 70% of deaths that happen from illnesses are caused by chronic stress. And chronic stress is probably the most, this is the biggest killer of people, you know, more than COVID, more than anything else. And so when someone is in a state of stress, And in a few seconds, I really want you to explain this from a neuroscience perspective, what's happening in the brain, what's happening in the amygdala, what's happening in the reptilian part of the brain, what, you know, how much the neocortex is being activated. But chances are, if you're listening to this, you spend a significant part of your day in a state of stress. When you're in a state of stress, it's really challenging to feel really peaceful, really blissful, really happy. And you know, typically when you're in a state of stress, it's not just certain parts of your brain being lit up. It's not just the fascia that is the, the sheath of, um, of tissue that covers your entire body tightening like a straitjacket. It's not just your attention, your awareness all getting squeezed down to the aperture of a peephole rather than looking out you know, at an expansive vista. But it's also your nervous system being in a primarily sympathetic state where your ability to rest and digest is impaired, which means 
the food that you're eating isn't being digested properly, the nutrients aren't getting absorbed. It also means that pro-social regulation is, is down, which means you can't really connect with people, you can't really harmonize with people, your nervous system can't really, really deeply co-regulate with them. And you're living essentially a masterpiece of a life on a post-it stamp, as one of my mm. mentors would say. And that is no way to live. And that's not me telling you how you should live, but that's just me pointing out the grandiosity of what the human experience can be by no fault of your own. And you know, there's hundreds of millions of people who do this unwittingly. They do this because they don't actually un understand. No one teaches people how no one gives them an owner's manual to their brain. No one gives them an owner's manual to their mind. And it's like, you know, when you're trying to teach your grandmother how to use Zoom and it's a very <laughs> frustrating experience, it's like that for people. Because when we try to use a tool that we don't know how to use, we don't understand how it works, it's a very frustrating time using it. And it's the same with the brain and the mind. So Kayla, let's break this down. What happens for most people in these high states of stress in the brain? Mm -hmm. And why should they really care about you know, using the brain's ability to be plastic, to be molded, to be reshaped, to actually shift into a different kind of shape, both from a hardware perspective, that is the literal synaptic configuration of the brain mm -hmm. and from a software perspective, which is what level of consciousness are we operating at? Are we operating in anger, shame, guilt, mm -hmm. which is the lowest part, right? Really heavy, dark, uh, constricting emotions. Or am I operating at peace, enlightenment, state of flow, state of grace, a state of um, just beautiful bliss and well-being? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting when you look at the brain itself. So I do EEG brain maps, right? And I look at people's brains and what they look like during different states. And you look for dysfunction. And so one of the biggest things that you see, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, fear, anger, um, these kind of lower level emotions, and then the higher level emotions, love, connection, the brain looks the same for fear, anger, and stress, depression. Well, there's a little bit of a difference for depression, but fear, anger, stress, it's kind of like a hypervigilant state, right? It's kind of a really chaotic state when you look at the brain. And then when you look at these higher state emotions, and it'd be interesting to look at different frequencies of both sound and emotions and then see exactly how that impacts the brain as far as what frequency is best. I would be, I would love to see that research. But when you look at the brain, when people are feeling emotions of love, of connection, of community, of safety, of peace, their brains, that's the same brain that looks like the same brain. So it's very, it looks very nice. All aspects are kind of speaking to each other. It looks more like a sympathy, sympathy, symphony, not sympathy, <laughs> looks more like a symphony of creation. It's very beautiful to look at a brain that is in that state. So you mentioned the amygdala, kind of that lizard brain. That is our fight or flight 
center of the brain, right? So when we experience stress, our sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight, kicks into action. We release stress hormones, namely cortisol, right? And that activates our brain, specifically that amygdala center of the brain, and all of the resources start to go to that area. That's true. However, there's another thing that happens that I think is more important. The brain goes into this chaotic state of no of lack of communication. It's trying to communicate. And all if you look at how the brain centers are communicating with each other, when you have the cap on and you have, you know, 30 some odd centers that are all being measured, you'll see that the brain is trying to communicate with each other, but there is no communication. There's a break in that synaptic communication. And then you'll see that as kind of like, if you look at a brain map, you'll see all these centers light up in red, meaning that it is in a stressful state. The communication is in a breakdown and it's, it's basically chaos. And then on the flip side, if you look at a brain that is calm, focused, feeling love, feeling connection, it is communicating beautifully. And there is not really a center that's lit up more than others necessarily, like it is in the stressful state. It's more like the brain is working perfectly and communicating with each other the best that it can in this perfect symphony of communication. It's really beautiful, actually. And this is a state of coherence, right? Yes. And I love the example. Flow, exactly. I love the example of the symphony because, you know, for the listeners, if you want to get a visual of what Kayla is saying, imagine the, the Royal Orchestra of London playing a symphony that they've practiced, you know, 10,000 times and you're sitting in the front row and these virtuoso musicians are, are playing at such a high level of their craft that each note is so perfect and it goes so well with every other sound that you just get drawn in almost an out-of-body experience of rather than just hearing the music, you, you become the music. And you may have experienced this, you know, maybe at a music festival, you know, someone's playing some really good electronic music, if that's more your thing, and your sense of self almost dissolves and you lose yes. yourself to the music. Now that's the brain when it's in a state of coherence. And the other extreme is imagine a bunch of random people who've never played music or given a bunch of instruments and they're just clanging and banging and just making whatever sounds. And it's just a cacophony mm-hmm. and it just feels like noise, right? You, you just feel absolutely assaulted by this, you know, disgraceful attempt at <laughs> creating music. No, yeah. no, no judgment there, but you know, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's sort of the extremes we're dealing with. And most people are living in this state of cacophony, yeah. accepting that as that's just how things are. Yeah. And then they're adding on top of it, nootropics and tons of coffee and no sleep. And they're trying to push through, especially I see so many biohackers, you know, high level business people who are running a bunch of businesses and they're responsible for not only their finances, but the finances of their whole team. And they're all into all this biohacking tech and, um, you know, supplements and all these things. But really, it's a Band-Aid for what I feel like they're really looking for, which is a state of flow, connection, love, 
peace, safety, of course, that comes into finances of being safe, but I think it can't really be achieved or it's going to be very difficult to be achieved if the way that you're getting there is accepting that state of chaos, of stress, and you're just trying to cover it up, put the band-aid on it of all of these supplements and ways to push through, ways to get through without really addressing that underlying thing, which is you have to use some way to tap into your mind, your brain, spirit, kind of connect all the three so that you can optimize your operating system. Right. And so this analogy of a band-aid is really useful because, you know, in some ways it's actually even worse than a band-aid because you take this disorganized nervous system, you know, dysregulated nervous system, you take a brain that is not in coherence where all these synapses are firing in all these different ways, the amygdala is, you know, enlarged because it actually gets enlarged. And they've done studies of the amygdalas of like meditators who've been meditating for years and their amygdala actually shrinks. Mm -hmm. And so you can, when, when Kayla says you can mold your brain, she really means you can mold your brain. You can literally shrink certain parts of the brain and expand other parts of the brain and increase your cognitive capacity for all sorts of things. Now, take the traditional approach, which is, I feel tired. So what does more cortisol and more stress in the system do? It makes you tired. It makes you want to shut down because the system is you know, short of resources and it's on overdrive. And so the system wants to downregulate. The system wants to spin down. But you take that as but I need to get work done. I need to be on. I need to perform. So typically, as Kayla said, take coffee, nootropics, all things that increase a sympathetic charge that activate the same part of the nervous system that is already overactive, but you're yes. trying to squeeze out a little bit more performance in the short term because you're just trying to get through the day. Now, what's happening is you're setting yourself up for an adrenal crash, Right. And there's a lot of stuff happening in the brain too. So before we go into what people can do instead, let's really highlight what happens when we take an already stressed out sympathetic dominant system and we add caffeine, nootropics, um, high intensity exercise, more stress, Mm -hmm. all of these additional load components to the system, like what happens under the hood? Like how can people sort of really understand what they're doing to their brains and how counterproductive it is? Yeah, so as you mentioned, they're overdriving a system that's already overdriven. So eventually the system will crash and that's when you see adrenal fatigue. That's when you see a lot of things like leaky gut, um, brain fog, and it can, manifest in much worse ways than that um, in a lot of other chronic diseases. But I'll give an example of myself personally. So three years ago, I was in a very bad relationship. It was very stressful. And because I was in that state of fight or flight in that relationship, and then when I ended that relationship, I had got a divorce. 
the stress of of that and my system being overdrive that whole time. And by the way, during that time, I was getting no sleep. I was drinking like five cups of coffee per day just to get through. And I was having it really high performance because I was going to the gym. I was working out. I was ignoring the issues to to just get through the day and like push through and finish my my schooling and and be you know the top person on my team at, in my job at CDC and all of this stuff. And so I was overdriving that stress system, that adrenal system. And eventually when that relationship finally ended, my body was like, I was finally like, okay, this is great. Like I have a, um, all of this is lifted off my shoulders and now I'm going to feel amazing. However, because I was no longer in that fight or flight state, my body tried to downregulate. My body tried to get into the state that I was aiming for of calm, peace, love, connection, connecting with myself, and finally just being like, ah, oh, thank God, this is nice. However, I was unable to do that. What happened was the opposite. My body shut down. I was crashing. I was having to take two naps a day. I couldn't drink enough coffee to wake up in the morning. I was not sleeping. My appetite was all messed up. All of my hormones were out of whack. I actually went and saw a functional doctor, did a Dutch test, got my hormones measured. And when I met with the doctor for the results, she said, I don't know how you're functioning, the way that like, I don't even know how we're having this conversation because you have zero hormones. I had zero estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. I had nothing going on. And that also means that my neurotransmitters were totally shut down as well. Serotonin, oxytocin, none of, I wasn't getting any of that stuff. No wonder I was in a poor mood. I had no energy. I had nothing, nothing was um, giving my body the fuel that it needed to get. I also ended up with adrenal fatigue um, and all of my inflammation markers were super high. I had leaky gut. My whole digestive system kind of shut down. Nothing was being digested properly. So then the undigested food goes through the intestines, rips holes in it, and it happens over and over. And then eventually you end up with leaky gut where toxins and things are getting into your system. So my system was toxic. I had no hormones going on. I had no neurotransmitter activity going on. Well, not optimal. And it was just, my body was still flooded with stress hormone. I wasn't getting any sleep. I wasn't able to produce melatonin to fall asleep at night. And this was because I overdrove that stress system and just kept hitting it more and more with coffee, nootropics, exercise, whatever to make me feel good. But the crash happened when I tried to downregulate, when I tried to get into that flow state and my body just completely shut down because I wore out that system. And if you're listening and this feels too real, you may be finding yourself, you know, pumping yourself full of coffee and still not finding that edge. Mm-hmm. And so what did you do next? Like what's, yeah. so if someone, if someone finds themselves at this place, or even somewhere on that spectrum where they're burning out, their mm-hmm. body is in a constant state of stress, constant state of fight or flight. And you know, a lot of people are in these states, but they don't realize it because yeah. they don't have uh, an, a level of intimacy with their, with their body. And a lot of people, they use the emergency brake for the nervous system, which is 
I'm just going to come back home from work. I'm going to drink two glasses of wine every night. And that's mm. going to help me relax. That's going to help me sleep right. or Netflix or something else. But yeah. you know, all of these things, they don't actually help. They just numb you. So you feel less of the things temporarily, but your body is still being antagonized. So let's flip the page to... You know, if someone finds themselves in in these places, or if someone just wa- doesn't want to go there ever, what are some practices? What are some ways in which they can restore harmony and actually find the kind of performance that they want to get out of their body, but in a way that actually respects their body, that really honors mm-hmm. their body? Because we're in these meat suits for life. We only get one of these. It's not, you know, a Hertz rental that we can, you know, total this one and then, yeah. you know, call them up and ask them to send another one. And they work really hard for us. And they do. They do. Yeah. Tirelessly. Yes. Yeah. So I'll give an example of what I did um, and then what I did that worked. But I would love to hear from your end what you do with your clients and other ways that you know that you can really take care of your body and get into that state of flow and feeling love and kind of down-regulating your nervous system. For me, so, you know, I got these diagnoses, essentially. We did comprehensive labs and found out basically everything was in a state of chaos. At that time, I hadn't had my brain mapped, but I'm sure my brain was going just crazy. It was definitely that cacophony. It was not a symphony. So at first I took the very um, masculine biohackers approach and I said, okay, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And, you know, because I'm deficient in all these different nutrients and because um, I need a boost of these neurotransmitters and because I need to um, heal my leaky gut, I was like, all right, I am going to go on a really strict diet. I am going to take 500 supplements, all the supplements, including adaptogens and everything that I know is really healing to heal my gut. And I'm going to maintain my really stringent exercise routine because I am a do athlete and I compete professionally. I always kind of saw that as an aspect of high level health, right? Because if I can perform at a really high level, then I must be doing something right. At this point, I focused on fitness, nutrition, and supplements. These were like my big buckets. And I was looking for other like tech and cool things that could help. And as you could guess, after about a year of that, um, I was worse than I was better. (laughs) And I was like, this is so frustrating. I don't know what to do. And unfortunately, the functional doctor that I was working with kind of... um, Uh, promoted this behavior. Um, They were like, yes, definitely eat these certain things, take all these supplements where you have to be so neurotic about it at wake up, breakfast, lunch, dinner, before bed. And it was like a crazy stressful routine. It was definitely adding more stress than it was helping. So after about a year of that, and this was kind of my logical scientific mind thinking like, okay, here's the problem, fix it, right? Here's the problem, fix it. And in functional medicine, that technically was the root cause, right? However, the real root cause was a lack of connection to myself and an overload of overrunning that stress system, that adrenal system. 
That's what needed to be addressed, but that's already the problem. It's already here. So what I had to do was flip the switch. I had to let go of my crazy workout routine. I had to let go of all this control that I had over my diet, over my um, supplements. And I really had to ramp up the mindfulness practice and prioritizing sleep. I had to let go of some of the things that I thought I had to do during the day that I was convinced that I had to do every single day that I was letting go of sleep to get these extra check marks done, right? And so I had to let go of some of those, reprioritize, prioritize sleep and boost sleep and really track sleep is really important to actually measure how well rested you are. And then I would use my heart rate variability as my gauge of how well rested am I today? Am I ready for a hard workout? And then by being more mindful about my workout routine and bringing that down about 10 notches, I was able to let my nervous system get into these states of parasympathetic rest and digest. And then on top of that, after I kind of had that going, I added a meditation practice, which took me a long time to really get into a flow with it. But now every morning I have to do my meditation about 10 or 15 minutes, sometimes longer, depending on how I feel that day. And then I have to do my breath work, which really activates that parasympathetic nervous system with a longer out breath than it in, which really tones your vagal nerve and activates your parasympathetic nervous system. Once I started ramping up those aspects, being more mindful Also, a gratitude practice was huge, and it doesn't have to be like a physical written one, but something that gets you into that way of thinking, that positive thought loop, right? Anything that gets you into that state of thinking is going to be helpful and help you to activate that parasympathetic nervous system and start to regulate your nervous system so that you can get into a state of fight or flight when you need to, but as soon as that's over, you should be able to come right back down into parasympathetic. Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes I say that all adrenal fatigue and burnout issues that people face are essentially tied to a lack of self-love, which is ultimately a disconnection from the self, which is a kind of fragmentation of the being. And the reason for that is that we, all over the world, were facing a more insidious disease And this is the disease of doing, because we all think that we aren't enough. We aren't good enough. We aren't skinny enough. We aren't wealthy enough. We aren't this enough, that enough. We must earn our worth. So to earn our worth, we work and we work hard and we take pride in only taking 14 days off a year if you have a corporate job, right? And... We, when we're not working, we are working our bodies in other ways because we're pushing ourselves to be always on. We're pushing ourselves to be always productive. We're pushing ourselves to make more, make more money, you know, have bigger houses, have nicer cars. We're always on the, on the race, on the rat race, on the treadmill, on the hamster wheel. And all of this is a function of the ego because the Mm. ego is never satisfied. For the ego, something is always going to be missing. And if you live under the rule of the ego, 
then you will always be trying to fill that void, that thing that is missing with more doing by, by being more successful. Because you, you will always think that when I receive this award, when I get this degree, when I get this promotion, when I get this bigger house, then I will feel good. Then I'll feel content. Then I'll feel enough. And then I can pause. But if you're a human being and you're listening to this, then you know that all your dreams that have already come true, that is, all the dreams that you've already experienced as true, whether it's your dream partner, your dream job, your dream house, once it was there in the present moment, you acknowledged it very briefly at best, and then started working towards something else that was just out of reach. And that's the, that's the game. That's the game that we play because we fall under the illusion of the ego-created reality. So when we live inside this illusion, what we want, what we need to feel complete, to feel whole, to feel enough is always outside us. And we need to work to bring it inside or to acquire it. And that's why people push themselves so hard, right? And so this disease of doing, doing too much, which is what causes all these issues, which is what causes this dysregulation in our nervous system and our brain and our bodies and our cells. Um, it you know, leads to autoimmune conditions, cancer, and you know, so many things. The cure is returning, taking refuge in our being. Now, when we are in our being, we are living outside that ego structure that is always seeking, that's always striving, that's always grasping. And that's where meditation, breath work, um, so my personal practices include, you know, every morning for an hour, I'll meditate, I'll visualize, you know, what the, the states that I want to live in. Um, I'll do breath work and I do different kinds of breath work. So some energizing breath work. Um, you may have heard of holotropic breathing, which really brings energy up, which tunes, spins up the system. And there's also, as you said, making the inhales longer sorry, the exhales longer, um, you know, allows you to essentially manipulate your body in a good way to create whatever state you want, right? If you want to energize, you make the, I think it's the exhales longer. Short. The Short. exhales are shorter. Yeah. That's right. And you flip it if you want to, you know, just calm down and you can do that at night. Another exercise that I found amazing for toning the vagus nerve is vocal toning. So humming um, can be extremely soothing and powerful. And it's like nature's Xanax. And the vagus nerve actually, um, you know, I, I was reading about the vagus nerve and I found out that we actually inherit our mother's vagal tone. So if mm -hmm. our mothers are in you know, a state of chronic stress, we will be more prone to chronic stress. So also, you know, from an epigenetic perspective, our lineage is really the Petri dish that's creating the, the environment in which our genes are being expressed in, you know, so culture. And, you know, in the beginning, you were talking about collective consciousness. The collective consciousness is also the Petri dish in which our genes are being expressed. Yes. So there's an immediate environment, but there's also like a larger construct. And so, 
that's why we if we live in the news and we live in the media that's the sim the signal and the stimulus we're giving to our genes to express themselves in a certain way you know a lot of these practices actually center around doing nothing if you think about it right it's doing less and this is hard to accept for a lot of people right and so one of the one of the let's say pieces of homework that my clients get is that every month they need to spend 4 hours in silence with no stimuli around them mm. so no people no phones no computers no book no music um just being in silence just with themselves and this is the hardest thing for most people to do right what do you mean i have to be alone with myself what do you mean i have to be alone with my own thoughts and most people actually have an adversarial relationship with their own mind with their own thoughts and it's precisely because of this adversarial relationship that we have with ourselves that we run away from ourselves and you know overdo it whether it's in work whether it's in working out whether it's in substances whether it's in food whether it's in media consumption whether it's in whatever else and that's why coming back full circle all of this i actually see it not as an adrenal problem or a mindset thing or whatever thing it's actually a self love thing mm. and if we can actually return to wholeness within ourselves if we can come to a state of peace and connection and harmony with ourselves if we can make friends with ourselves with our interior with the sensations in our body with our thoughts with our feelings with our emotions rather than running from them rather than pushing them away rather than resisting them we can pretty much eliminate all our human suffering. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And something that I've noticed in, you know, working with my clients or even friends and family and I have a lot of uh history of mental illness in my family and addiction and and all of this kind of comes from exactly what you're talking about. I think it's a lack of self-love. So even the clients who come to me and you know, they want to optimize their metabolism. They want to know their nutrient levels and fix it and they want to know their toxin levels and fix it and and all of this really kind of physical tangible stuff. And I love that stuff. That's my bread and butter. However, if they don't have a level of self-compassion, a level of self-love, what they're going to do is they're just going to overstress themselves because they're putting so much pressure on healing this thing, being perfect, right? So I think it does come back to self-compassion, self-love, giving yourself grace, letting yourself have whatever it is that you need to feel good whether you think you deserve it or not, right? If you really think about it, this is also a perfect example of this is like sleep disorder. And how many of us have a hard time falling asleep? So many, right? Maybe like 80% of people probably or at least Americans. And I think that the reason why is because of a lack of self-love, self-compassion, a comfortable feeling of being with yourself and your thoughts and knowing that you are enough and that you are perfect in whatever state that you're in, right? So, if you really think about it, most people, especially busy working people, especially people with families and high-level jobs and all of these things that we have that we fill our time with, 
The first time that we are alone with our thoughts with no outside stimulus is when we put our head down on the pillow, we close our eyes, and we expect to instantly fall asleep. Mm. Now, if that's the first time in the entire day that you have spent some time alone with yourself, do you think that you're going to be able to just shut off and go to sleep? No, your body's like, thank you. Hello, I'm here. Connect with me. And now the scrolodex of, of everything that you could possibly think of is going to start going in your brain because you are not comfortable being alone with yourself with no outside stimulus. So when people come to me and they complain of sleep as their main issue, this is one of the first things that I address. How often are you spending time alone with yourself? And do you think that if when you go to sleep is the first time in the whole day that you are actually connecting to yourself, if you do you think that that's going to allow you to fall asleep and maybe consider that situation? Yeah, and you know, sleep along with chronic stress is probably the other widespread markers that we see in society today. Yeah. Because when you take, you know, addiction to devices, whether it's phones, laptops, TV, um, you, you know, every notification is basically using your fight and flight, fight or flight system yeah. to basically shoot cortisol into your body to catch your attention. Uh, you know, everything in modern society is designed to spike cortisol. Yes. You know, whether it's the food, whether it's the advertisements, whether it's the media, whether it's even driving is, you know, spiking cortisol. Work is spiking cortisol. And when are people spending time in a down-regulated, calm, beautiful state, right? And as you said, the expectation is that as soon as the head hits the pillow, you fall asleep and it's lights out. But at best, you're going to fall asleep and have really poor sleep. Yeah. And at worst, it's going to be very hard to fall asleep or you'll keep waking up. And that's biofeedback. That's a system saying, hey, I need attention. Hey, like, please, like, take care of me. I, 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 this is a two-way street. Like, I need something from you if you want me to keep toiling away and yeah. making everything work. Because think about it. We have, what, like 7 trillion cells, and some cells magically become our liver. And <laughs> yeah. there is some intelligence that makes them function perfectly. That Then other cells become the pancreas. And they have this agreement and then other cells are the intestines and they all work in concert in the most exquisite level of mathematical precision, all without a single conscious thought on our part. And the way we treat our bodies in return, like if you treated a friend like that, you wouldn't be fr they wouldn't be friends with you for very long. But we have this entitlement with our bodies, with our minds, with our brains. Right? There is no acknowledgement. There's no gratitude. And that's why when you say gratitude, gratitude is so important. Like how often do we take time to thank our bodies? We only pay attention to our bodies when something is wrong. When something isn't going and functioning as we like. We're like, not good enough. Mm -hmm. I need more. You need to work harder. You're letting me down. But when the times are good, we don't think about it at all. And it's a thankless job. And so that kind of appreciation, that kind of gratitude, and I think you model it really beautifully. I'd love for you to share 
your gratitude practice because I think it's really exquisite. And I think it gives people, because a lot of people talk about gratitude, but you know, sometimes a tangible um, way to, to do it, to practice it is really helpful. So I'd love for you to share yeah. you know, how you practice gratitude. Yeah, so for me with any of my practices, accountability is a big piece. So I find when I share things outwardly, whether it's what I'm going to do or my gratitude practice itself, like yesterday, I posted on my Instagram page, my gratitude practice for the day. And I listed all the people who first came to my mind that I'm just so grateful that they're in my life in some capacity and they inspire me and make me feel great and sharing that with somebody. And then that might spark them to do their gratitude practice, right? But another thing that I like to do is I like to set gratitude triggers that remind me to be grateful because we forget, right? We get going and work emails, podcasts, recordings, working with clients, research, whatever. And we just get distracted and we forget to be grateful. So I do it in a couple ways. One is super easy. I just set a gratitude reminder alarm on my phone. And then So it just comes up and it says, remember to be grateful and whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be like a written practice. It could just be a thought like, oh, well, I'm so grateful that right now, like I'm in a beautiful home. I'm safe. I have air conditioning. I have my kittens here. Then I can go on with my day. And it is kind of like a nice nervous system reset. But the other one is I like to do a doorway trigger. So when every time I walk through a doorway, I like to think about what I'm grateful for that's waiting for me on the other side. So every time I walk through a doorway, like say I'm going into a meeting, I like to already think about the gratitude I have for the outcome of that meeting before I walk through. So I think setting little reminders for yourself is a way to make it really easy and it doesn't have to be strenuous. It doesn't. And also don't, don't make it stressful. Don't make it. I have to spend 10 minutes writing my gratitude practice every morning because eventually you'll fail to do that. And then you'll have guilt or shame or whatever it is associated with that. So make it fun, give yourself reminders and use accountability. I think that's a really powerful way to encapsulate, you know, how to in- install any practice because, yeah. you know, the subconscious mind needs some sort of a trigger and it needs some sort of a reward. In this case, the feeling of gratitude is the reward, which is really yeah. nice. You can also tie it to food. Like I give mm-hmm. gratitude before eating anything and it mm-hmm. just takes, you know, it downregulates the system, puts us in a state of parasympathetic rest and digest. And, you know, the food is great reward for the feeling of gratitude. And this idea of using triggers is really powerful because, you know, we tend to forget, as you said. And so using triggers to create these habit loops, trigger, action, reward, trigger, action, reward, you can do that with anything. So anything that you do on a daily basis, like brushing your teeth, you can tie some mirror work practice to that. So Mm -hmm. brush your teeth, rinse your mouth, look into your eyes in the mirror and put your hand on your different parts of your body and just say, thank you. Thank you for Mm. taking care of me. Thank you for working so hard. And it might only take a minute, but it's when you stack it on top of things you're already doing daily, it's really easy. And it just, it's effortless. It's a beautiful feeling and it just wires it in. And if you do it once regularly, every single day, 
then your brain will actually try to find more opportunities to do it because it thinks that this habit is actually important to your survival. This is the yes. same mechanism that makes people addicted to cigarettes because the brain actually thinks that this, this cigarette is essential to our survival. So I better find a way to really myelinate this, you know, these synapses so that yeah. this happens you know, all the time guaranteed. And that's why addiction is hard to break. And so we can use the same mechanisms that create damage for, for good. Yeah. So you mentioned the mirror work. What are some other ways that you practice gratitude? Or for instance, I know you work with really high level like executives, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and you help them to optimize their health and wellness. And gratitude is a piece of that. So what do you do with them? With somebody who's maybe just like super stressed out, really busy working 20 hour days because that's just where they are in their their part of life, right? How do you incorporate gratitude for them? Yeah, so the, the, the first piece of gratitude is actually for others. Because mm-hmm. for, for people who are highly motivated, they're high achievers, they're very successful, they're actually used to never giving themselves credit. Yeah. And that's actually the, the reason why they're so successful. Because the people who are super successful, at some point, experienced a disconnection with themselves and they, they, they thought that they needed to create a lot of success to feel whole and to feel complete. Yeah. So that's where that drive comes from. Someone like that, you know, if you're listening and you're a high achiever, you work a lot, you're very successful, you've created a lot, you know, for yourself, for your family, it may be hard to be appreciative of yourself, even though that's what you deeply need. So an, a starting point is often the people around them that they really love and care about. Sometimes it's their child. Sometimes it's a parent. Sometimes it's a partner. Sometimes it's even a dog because dogs really model unconditional love and gratitude. Mm-hmm. And so the second piece of this process is transference. So once we, and you know, there's a Buddhist practice, metta, loving kindness, which mm-hmm. is really directing loving kindness um, at other people, at the world, and at oneself. So in this case, once we have a GPS point for gratitude, using someone who the person really cares about, then what I do is I create a flip, which is imagine now this person looking at you and see yourself through their eyes and feel how grateful they feel for you. Mm. Feel how much they love you feel how much they care about you, feel how much they wish for your health, your happiness, you know, your joy. And usually when someone sees themselves through the other person's eyes, something, something starts to soften, something starts to move. Mm-hmm. And that melting, that subtle softening is needed to create the entry into them feeling gratitude for themselves, into them acknowledging themselves, into them appreciating themselves. So then the third part of this, the process is, well, what do you want to acknowledge about yourself? What are you really grateful for? What do you really love about yourself? And you know, a lot of the people I work with, they, they've never actually stopped and appreciated themselves because all their achievements are only useful to have something to chase. 
But once they achieve the thing, once they create the thing, once they have the thing, then it just becomes a non-event. Then it's time to move on to the next thing, right? And that creates this almost a tug of war within the self, which no matter how much money you have, and I work with you know, people worth like 100 to $500 million, they still feel like they don't have enough money to feel deeply safe, Yeah. right? They're still chasing. So all of it actually comes back to one's relationship with the self. And sometimes this work is done using a mirror, which is super mm. powerful. Sometimes... Yeah. I have my clients do mirror work naked, which is another level of edginess. And they do this, you know, by themselves. They don't have to worry about anyone else. But to really make contact with yourself and hold that attention, hold that gaze, is usually an experience that people have never had. Yeah. Because most people are trying to escape themselves, to run away from themselves. And, you know, all of my work is really like, if you can see yourself through my eyes, then your life will completely change. Mm. So what I'm doing here is I'm holding them in a place of unconditional love and unconditional acceptance and non-judgment. Because most people, they've been swimming in a sea of shame, guilt, judgment, punishment. You know, you do this and you're rewarded and you're a good boy. And if you do this and then you're bad and you're a bad girl or whatever, you know, however they were parented. And this reward punishment style, it really messes people up. And so usually when I work with people, that's the first time they've truly felt safe. That's the first time they've truly felt seen. That's the first time they've truly felt accepted and not judged and loved. And I think that's the only medicine that anyone really needs. Because if we can feel that, kind of self-acceptance, self-love and connection with ourselves, then everything else fixes itself. That's really powerful. I've never thought about that is, you know, we're so good at putting ourselves in other people's shoes, right? We want to put ourselves in other people's shoes so we can have compassion for them. We want to understand what it might like to be like to be them. But I've never thought about putting myself in somebody else's shoes and looking back at me. That's a really, that's so powerful. I think anybody should try this, you know, think of your partner or even just a child, Yeah. how they look, look at you and they just see you for who you are and how beautiful you are and how much they love you. That's incredible. If we could love ourselves that way. Yeah. And the, the, supercharged version of this is make a list of 10 people who you love the most or who love you the most and just go down that list and spend five minutes on each person seeing yourself Mm -hmm. through their eyes. So this is actually doing something pretty profound and I'll explain what the underlying mechanism of this is. Usually we are trapped inside our ego structure. So the ego is like a box and we're Mm -hmm. sitting inside the box. That's our perspective. Yes. So the furthest we can see is as far as the wall, walls of the box allow us to see. When we're trapped in our own perspective, our perspective is limited and we don't see as much. We can't see as much. We can't appreciate ourselves as much. We don't, we see our flaws more than we see our positive attributes. When we see ourselves through someone else's eyes, we're literally looking at ourselves from outside the box. Mm. And when we're outside the box, our, our sight, our vision, our perspective is unconstrained. And from that place, we actually see the full picture. 
right? We see how hard we work. We see how much we care. We see how important it is to, you know, provide for our families, to make sure our friends feel loved and supported and cared for, right? And the glaring flaws, the deep insecurities and inadequacies that plague us on a daily basis that dominate our consciousness suddenly recede and they become a smaller piece and a smaller piece and a smaller piece. And that's perspective, Mm-hmm. Right. That's a little more objectivity. True objectivity is impossible, but that's a little more objectivity. And sometimes we just need that space. We just need that little bit of space from ourselves to truly see ourselves, to truly know ourselves. And this is actually why we're getting we're going to get a little woo woo here. Woo warning. This is why. Prepare yourselves. Prepare yourselves. <laughs> Put on your seatbelts. Um, this is why. There is a you and there is a me. So in in reality, we are all the same consciousness that's refracted through 7 billion ego structures and 7 billion bodies. Each with, with a label, with a gender, with a personal identity, with a name, with a zip code, with a political preference and blah, blah, blah. Right. But we live in this illusion of separation, like you are different from me and I'm different from you and you're a woman and I'm a man and you're this and I'm that. But in reality, we are one. We are the same. But this illusion exists because the universe, if it's just this one thing, it can't know itself because to know itself, there needs to be a subject and there needs to be an object. Mm. And so that's why... To know ourselves, we need the other to serve as a mirror so we can see ourselves reflected through the eyes of the other. So we need each other so we may truly know ourselves. And that's why these 7 billion different fragments of the universe or God or source or whatever you want to call it is trying to know itself back to wholeness. And that's why human beings need community. That's why We are obsessed with partnerships and marriages and friendships and community because we need people. We need other people so that we may truly know ourselves. And that's that's what this life is. This life is us being born into the illusion, forgetting who we really are Mm -hmm. and remembering using all these reflections of all these people around us our parents, our friends, our lovers, our, you know, our dogs, our kids, our just everyone. And that's why this is so key, right? That's why this practice is game changing. Because when we can truly see ourselves through the eyes of the other, then differences dissolve. Then all our shame, guilt, all that stuff melts away. And we realize the perfection, the divine perfection of who we are. And once someone glimpses the divine perfection of their own being, then there's no lack, there's no insecurity, there's no need to perform, there's no need to like earn one's worth, there's no need to defend, there's no need to project, there's no need to be angry or create violence. There's only a resting in the state of peace and fundamental well-being. Mm. So beautifully said. Thank you. That is so profound. And I think if the listeners can take one thing from this episode, it's that, right? Be able to relate to yourself through the other. 
And that could be the solution to all the craziness going on with COVID, the BLM movement, and any other thing that separates us that can bring us back together. That's so profound. And I think you're right. It's it's about having a point of reference. So if your point of reference is to imagine yourself as the other person and view yourself from that point, and that's the first time you've ever done it, well, now you know what that feels like, right? And you can get back to that place. So I think it's about gaining a perspective that allows you to be able to come back to that point. So if the listeners are hearing this and they're like, wow, that's amazing. But if they're like most people, let's say in a relationship, the person you share your home with, and they are like triggering you all day long, right? Because they're that mirror. They're showing you what you maybe don't like in yourself. And all of this is the way that you react to this and the way that you see the other person and the way that you you behave with the other person is determined by your subconscious programs that are already there from all the experiences of your life, going back to the petri dish of your ancestors and everything, right? <clears throat> if that's the case, and here's where you are. And right now you're in a really reactive state and you're already thinking like, oh, well, the other person thinks X, Y, Z, because... That's your perception. You have these programs that are telling you that that's what that person thinks. What is the first step to kind of overcoming that? How do you get those lanes of communication open? Because I know for me, I a lot of my suffering over the past of my life, all the years of my life, have come from my own thoughts about what other people think about me. So I would think I have to achieve to get love. Or I have to get to this level of my career to be respected and loved, right? Or this person must think I'm a total bitch. Even if that's not even what they're thinking, that's what I'm thinking. How do you get over that hump? Yeah, so they're definitely not thinking that. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. What's, What's happening is, let me start with just the the bullet version answer. Yeah, yeah. The bullet version is that there is no other. There is no other. Anything and everything you're experiencing is actually really an internal phenomenon that's being projected onto someone else. So she thinks that I'm a bitch. When we translate it is there's a part of me that's judging me and labeling me a bitch. Yes. So when we really, really understand this idea of there is no other then life changes in a way that you know you it's unimaginable because then the next what you do is you're like huh i i just had a thought first thing is to notice the thought yes right because you are not your thoughts you're the thinker of your thoughts so you notice the thought you're like oh wow i just had this thought that i think or i think that she thinks that i'm a bitch huh interesting thought So what I'm already doing is I'm creating a separation between me and my thoughts, right? Because I'm not my thoughts. I'm just the space in which those thoughts are arising. Now, once once I have created a little bit of space, what this does is it separates the subject from the object. So now I can see the thought. And now that I can see the thought, then I can say that, okay, what part of me 
actually believes that this is true, right? So is there a part of me that actually is judging me and that's calling me names? And then you try to talk to that part of yourself, right? You say, oh, wow, is, you know, is there a part of me that is judging me? What does that part want? What does that part want from me? What does that part need from me? Why is that part angry with me? Why is that part hurt? And then can I basically be the parent to that part of myself? And can I soothe that part of me like it was my child? Can I scoop that part of me in my arms? And can I really love it? Can I accept it? Mm-hmm. Not change it, right? Not try to NLP or some other cognitive bullshit yeah. <laughs> trick, you know, into convincing it that like it, it's invalid. Yeah. But can I really hold it? Yeah. And can I really give it my attention? And can I really be with it? Because what those parts of us really want from us is our attention. That's all they want. They want our care. And that's why I said the, the biggest disease in the world is we're all running away from ourselves. Mm. Right? And the only solution, the only medicine we need is to come home to ourselves. And the only way we do that is to make our home a less hostile place yeah. is to make our home cozy and safe and friendly and, and nice. Right. And how do we, how do we make our home? How do we give our home a makeover with attention, with care, with yeah. intention, with love, with appreciation. Right. And that's what those parts of us need. So if we can give the parts of us that are in pain, what they need, then automatically they stop crying for attention and the cry for attention from some part of us looks like a thought like she thinks that I'm a bitch yeah. because that's the only way those parts of us can get our attention. Yeah. So the bottom line is that that's a cry for help, right? But think about Absolutely. what people would usually do in that situation. They would it. think, yeah, or how can I not, how can I prove to her that I am not a bitch, even though right. that person's not even thinking that. <laughs> right. But now, but yeah. now it becomes in the illusion, it becomes about the other person. Right. Right. Because now I projected it onto her. Yeah. Now she is part of my drama. Yes. Now I'm going to act out at her because yes. I think that she thinks I'm a bitch. Yeah. So now or look to her to around. correct it. Yes. Yeah. Because it's in her yes. hands. Right. 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 I love that you pointed out that the first step in all of this is self-awareness, which I honestly think is the first step in any behavior change, self-awareness. It's like you said, also the GPS point, I wrote it down because I love that. It's the GPS point. It's the self-awareness. It's the identification of that cry for help. And I think once you have that self-awareness, then you can separate yourself from it. And that was that kind of, you know, how when I was talking about the operating system, how we have the physical construct, the hardware, we have the um, invisible construct, which is the mind, the software, and that other aspect, the one that's kind of hard to put your finger on, that spirit or um, soul, whatever you want to call it, 
collective consciousness, there's that other aspect. And I think that it has to do with this self-awareness GPS point thing and separating from it and realizing there is another aspect that you're not paying attention to. And I love the way that Eckhart Tolle explained this. So in his awakening that started him down the, his whole spiritual path, and um, he talks about this in his book, The Power of Now. Have you read it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his whole thing that sparked his whole spiritual awakening was he was suicidal. He was going to end his life. He hated himself. He was laying in bed one night and he said in his mind, I cannot live with myself anymore. And then a second thought came up. He said, wait a minute. Who is I and who is myself? Are there two different beings? Am I one thing and myself is another thing? And that put him down this whole path of realizing that you can be the observer and you don't, your ego is not you. Right. It's an aspect of you, right. something to identify. And I don't agree with the whole ego death thing. I think it's more about identifying it and being able to dance with it, right? Exactly. But it's your ego is one thing. That's maybe the myself that he was talking about. But the I is the soul, the higher consciousness, the, the being, the person that you forgot who you were. And so I love that you put this into perspective in the work that you do. And I think it's perfectly described by exactly what Eckhart Tolle was talking about. Yeah, thank you. I think I feel so profoundly grateful, speaking of gratitude, that this is the work I do and this is the work I've chosen to do. Yeah. And that my existence is dedicated to liberating people from this prison of self-deception. And this is not... This is, there's an innocence to this, right? It's not anyone's fault. They're not doing anything wrong. But this is, it's like we're sitting in a movie theater watching a movie and we just lose track of the rest of the world. We get so absorbed in the movie. Yeah. And that's what life is. It's this dreamlike state where it's, we're living inside the ego and we're being pulled in these directions by the ego because it's always searching for something. And we never stop to ask, who is this illusion, this dream occurring to, as you said, right? Because we are not this illusion. We're not this ego. We're not this craving. We're not this anger. We're not this doubt. We're not this imposter syndrome. We're not this procrastination or perfectionism or we're not this issue and that issue. We're not bipolar. We're not depressed. We're not anxious. Yeah. We're not suicidal. We are just a space in which all those things arise. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it rings so true for me and my own evolution and really has been the key to my own health. And so, you know, I think I always come back to this point, like self-awareness is the first step. Self-awareness is not the cure or the answer, but it's the first step towards finding the answer. Um, So I'm curious from you, something I like to ask all my podcast guests is maybe it's exactly this, what we're talking about, but maybe it's something completely different. But if you could provide the listeners with like one tangible piece of advice, something they could do today, something easy that would have a profound impact on their health and wellness. What is it? What, what's your, what's your secret? I would say slow down. Yeah. Because we operate entirely way too fast. 
We try to do too much. We try to run, 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 run. And there's a beautiful, um, beautiful metaphor in the Kabbalah tradition where, you know, if you look at a book, most people, they look at the, the words, right? The black ink on the pages. And when you read a book, you sort of get lost in the black ink, in the lettering. And you forget about the white space that's all around. But it's the white space all around that makes the book a book, right? Without that, it would just be black. Alan Watts says that it's the gaps, it's the bits of silence that make music music and not noise. Mm. And so if you can slow down, and if you can notice those gaps, if you can be the white space of the page where the ink appears, and if you can just for a moment, just for a few moments, just allow yourself to just be the space where things appear, thoughts, feelings, sensations, and just relax into that state of rest. You'll get a glimpse of who you truly are. And when you get a glimpse, when you get a little taste, then you start getting intrigued. And then you start getting curious. And then you go a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper. And before you know it, you stumble on the grandiosity of your true nature. And you realize that you are not who you thought you were. You're actually this limitless, infinite field of pure potential that is being manifested into form based on your beliefs and your thoughts and your habits and your history in the way it has. But you can actually create any form that you wish. You can be anything. You can be anyone. All you have to do is choose. I love that. And it's so empowering, right? To realize that you, me, anyone is so powerful that they have complete control over how they manifest in this world, meaning what they do, who they are, who they have around them, what they do for work, what they spend their energy on, their experience. We have complete control over it. And that's what I love about this because once you realize you have control, the possibilities are endless. Anything is possible. Once you realize it's not out of your hands. So and, I love that so much. And one, one way I would also think about it is once you realize how powerful you are, you realize you don't need control at all. Yes. And that's the step that I'm working on. <laughs> because if we can relinquish that control, yeah. then we stop creating that stress. We cr yeah. stop creating all the tying all the knots. Yeah. For me, it's like this um, mental scrolodex, right? Mm. That's constantly running. It's like this back program. It's, it's a little bit different than the subconscious mind because it's like the hypervigilant subconscious mind right. where it's constantly pulling in everything from the environment and putting it all in a perfect box, organizing it, and then systematizing it and deciding what to act first on and how to act, right? Right. And that's what I'm working personally to deconstruct because I've had a taste of this person that I 
truly am, the soul that I truly am. I've seen it a few times. I've, I've gotten a little taste of it. I have the GPS point, but I realize something that's in my way is that hypervigilant mind. And it comes from that need for control. Right. So I would actually go even deeper, right? Let's I would do ask, it. <laughs> so, so I would ask why the hypervigilance, right? Yeah. And then why the need for control? Yep. And, and for me, I do know the answer to that. Yeah. yeah. And it's usually tied to safety, yes, really a lack absolutely. of safety. And so what we're doing pretty much all the time is we're trying to reorganize ourselves to optimize for safety. Yes. Because control is always our little hack to create safety. Because if we can control all the variables, then it's predictable, it's familiar, and we'll be safe. So typically what happens when we experience less than safe conditions, and sometimes it's trauma, Mm -hmm. is that we are alone, right, in these situations. And the intensity of the experience is too much for us to feel because we're cut off, we're isolated, and it's too much for our system. So what happens is the system like cuts us off. This is the kindness of the design, right? This is the kindness of nature. It spares us by dissociating us from our own experience. But when we don't fully process the experience, then what happens is the experience is still running almost like a program, like a cycle. And that's what creates the hypervigilance. That's what creates this constant need for control. So part of the work I do is sometimes with the assistance of psychedelics um, and empathogens, I do deep trauma work with people and help them reprocess and complete these trauma cycles Mm. to finally liberate them. Because there's, you know, this this path is twofold. There's top-down and there's bottom-up. Yes. All the meditation, mindfulness, all that stuff is top down. That's mind first. But the bottom up part is really working with the body, really working with you know, the debris of our past. Mm-hmm. And all of that must be fully integrated for us to experience wholeness. So that is a very, very, very essential component of finding that place of liberation. And it's often, it's always liberation from ourselves, right? But it's what part of ourselves and why is that part there and how is it trying to serve us and how is it protecting us and what is it doing for us and what does it need? And so this weekend, I facilitated a group of people with, um, with empathogens and Mm. can you explain what an empathogen is really quick? Sure. There's a class of compounds that essentially create an empathogenic response. It, you know, amps up your level of empathy Mm-hmm. and creates a very heart-centered self-love and other loving experience. And from a neuroscience perspective, and some of these compounds are MDMA, MDA, um, and MDMA is actually in phase three trials with the FDA um, yes. to be used in a therapeutic setting. What it does is it really um, brings down the, the activation of the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, as you know. So it allows us to go into really, really painful memories and really painful experiences and with a skilled practitioner, reprocess them in such a way that we can complete those trauma cycles and essentially bring in a resource state. So this past weekend, one of the people you know, in, in, the, in the journey was dealing with, um, he dealt with sexual abuse at, an, at a, a very early age. 
and hadn't told anyone. There was a lot of, you know, stuff, emotions around it. And as you can imagine, that really impairs the ability to function. Reprocessing that not only allowed a way for that debris to be softened, melted, and flow almost like a regular emotion, mm-hmm. right? Because we want to bring motion and movement to frozen aspects of the self. But also what we did was very interesting. We reprocessed the memory in such a way that he was actually able to call for help. And he did so. Mm. And he screamed out. And he, he we used his imagination to allow him to feel like someone heard him and yeah. someone came and was able to intervene and prevent the situation from ever happening. Yeah. And so the one of the cool things about the brain is that when we recall memory, the brain actually overwrites the original record. Yeah. So we can re we can literally change the past. We can change old memories. And as far as the brain is concerned, we can store it back without the emotional pain and the emotional charge. And this stripping of the memory from the emotional charge allows us to essentially integrate and release trauma in a really powerful way, really quick way, and liberate the person from carrying this this cycle that's you know often creating challenges in their life. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because this is something that is well known in the field of clinical hypnosis, right? But a shortcut to that is using psychedelics, like you mentioned, because it kind of shuts down that prefrontal cortex and allows you to access these old memories without the ego tied to it, without your constructs, right? And you're exactly right. The brain and your physical body doesn't know the difference between an imagined something and a memory and an actual event happening. So also when you remember a traumatic event, your body and your brain acts as if it's really happening in this moment. So it's really important to replace those memories with something that doesn't have, like you said, that emotional charge so that you can not keep reliving this and keep getting traumatized by it every time you think of it. So I love that. And I feel like we could go down this rabbit hole for an entire other episode. And actually I would love to do so, but I want to make sure that the listeners can also get access to your information and where they can connect with you in case they want to continue on this path and learn more about what you do. So please do share. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at ani.manian, A-N-I.M-A-N-I-A-N, animanian.com. Um, and you can also check out the You Are Limitless podcast on all the podcast places. Yes. Um, yeah, come uh, come at me. It's always a pleasure to connect. And I'd also love for you to share a little bit about your work and where my listeners can find you and all the cool stuff you're up to. Yeah, thank you. So first of all, I would love for your listeners, my listeners, anyone who is here today to connect with me. Um, And that could just be a direct message through Instagram and email. Um, My Instagram is biocurious underscore Kayla. 
And then my Gmail address is the same. It's biocurious, no underscore, just biocuriouskayla at gmail.com. And I respond to everything personally. So I would love to connect with anyone who wants to connect. And I also do um, a a bit of one-on-one coaching, though I keep it to a very small clientele because we go very deep into work. Um, But if you're interested in learning more about that, feel free to reach out to me. I don't publicly... um, Um, have like a link where I allow people to sign up. It's more about word of mouth and connecting and seeing if it's the right fit. But I do have a mini course online that does talk about reshaping your brain, this neuroplasticity aspect, and reprogramming the subconscious mind in a very tangible stepwise way. It's kind of a beginner's guide to this. And that's called Untapped Mind. You can access that through the link in my bio on Instagram. That's the easiest way. Love it. And I can't recommend your work, your intelligence and wisdom is and your just deep care enough. It's uh It's been a wonderful conversation and I can't wait for round two. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And the feeling is so mutual. You are so special and so powerful and the work you do is so important. So I cannot wait to continue this conversation. And also, you know, I'm taking so much personally from our friendship and this conversation and all the conversations to come. Such a pleasure. Talk to you you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into another week of the BioCurious podcast. And also, thank you for being part of the BioCurious community. I really appreciate each and every one of you. If you enjoyed this episode, please support our work by leaving us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And you could also send this episode to one friend who you think could benefit from the information in this episode. And if you screenshot this episode and share it on social media, please be sure to tag us so that we can repost it and also connect with you personally. Until next time, my friends, be well.